Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. Hello, Thomas. I'm Hello. talking to Thomas back today, um, the uh, reader in neuroscience at the Edinburgh University. And this is our third podcast where we've been talking about languages. And in this episode, I'd like to talk about um, specifically the UK, because that's where I'm living and working. And, and so are you. And um, we, as do I. Uh, yes, as do you. So we have we have said so far in our podcast that language learning is a really valuable and wonderful thing for our health and our social emotional development, etc. And we can start at any age, we can continue uh, throughout the whole lifespan. However, there seems to be a bit of a crisis in the UK about languages at the moment. So just to give some context, the government made languages not a compulsory subject at GCSE in the mm -hmm. early 2000s. And a report came out a few weeks ago in the BBC, an analysis by Brown and Jeffries, that the um, the fall in the take-up at GCSE is really almost approaching 50% in some um, mm -hmm. geographical areas. So we're basically going to get to a point where we don't have enough people taking yeah. language subjects and therefore we don't have enough teachers going through mm -hmm. training and then we're going to have a shortage of teachers. Yeah, and yeah. like Latin, I remember as a um, young sort of 11, 12-year-old, I was looking forward to doing Latin and the teacher retired and nobody replaced the Latin teacher. It was, you know, that, that was the end of Latin. Oh, gosh, that's very unfortunate. Yes, it was very unfortunate, but it also seems to be the way German is going in particular. You know, there aren't going to be enough German teachers to furnish schools with German teachers because nobody's taking it up. So let's talk about in this episode, what, what can we do um, and why is it so hard for the UK um, to, to get into languages? what is there something that's stopping us? Or um, is, is uh, British people not capable of learning languages? There seem to be um, some hang-ups about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, to start with, uh, it has not always been the case. Mm. So historically, British people were, didn't necessarily have a reputation of being particularly bad at learning languages. Mm. So in fact, throughout the history, a lot of British people learn different languages. Mm. I mean, uh, they are, you know, famous historical examples, including royal family from Queen, from, you know, Queen, Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth to yeah. Yeah. Queen Victoria, in yes. fact, yeah. uh, who, you know, spoke at home mm. German and mm. in fact did some attempts to learn Urdu, which has, was kind of uh, yes. discussed recently. and. Particularly if you look in the uh, 18th, 19th century, let's say 18th century, Casanova's memoirs, he traveled the whole of Europe from Portugal to Russia, and he found that British were very good in speaking, uh, in speaking French, not only the kind of the upper most, but I mean, generally, there was good knowledge you could get along very well speaking French in well, London in, Britain, in we, 18th we, century. We had French for 600 years. Exactly, as, exactly. Uh, yes. Another interesting fact is, I mean, I spoke with a colleague in Cambridge who works on economic history, and he says that if you look at the 19th century, British authors were more often citing work by German and French colleagues than vice versa. Mm. And I can tell you also from the history of neurology that, you know, if you read, for instance, work from, you know, late 19th century, aphasia, uh, you at that time there was no Google Scholar mm. and the things were not translated, so people are citing, I mean basically most scholars spoke or at least were able to read all those three languages. Yes. So from this point of view I think the knowledge of foreign languages in Britain is not something that has always been perceived as bad and so mm. on. Mm. I think there is clearly a negative development over 
the last, you know, decades. Yeah, maybe the last hundred years or so. Yeah, or, yeah. or certainly after the Second World War. Yeah. What is often blamed for that is the fact that English became, the, so to say, the international language. The so let's franca. say lingua franca. Yeah. In 18th century, when you were an English aristocrat and you wanted to go on a grand tour, Right. of Europe, you couldn't quite do it with English, so you definitely needed your French, and yeah. probably if you went to Italy, you know, some knowledge of Italian would have yeah. been helpful too. Now you could, so to say, do your grand tour and get along with English. Mm -hmm. So, from this point of view, I would say, if we look, if we look, so to say, at something which is emerging as a leitmotif, as a threat of all these episodes, it is the idea that if we not ha if something becomes not necessary, mm. we have to compensate for it consciously. Yes, that's it. So you, you don't have to. In Obviously, some way, yeah, you don't have to know exactly. another language. If you're yes. if you're already an English speaker, you can go yes. to Spain and you can get along yeah. perfectly fine just with English. You don't need. Well, need I mean, to it depends. I mean, if you stay but, in tourist, I mean, Spain yeah. is a kind of interesting example because if you stay in tourist places, yes. But yeah. I mean, as soon as you go yes. a little bit in the countryside, you will find that the knowledge of English is not necessarily but that. It depends what kind amazing. of experience you want to have on your holiday, Absolutely. isn't it? If Absolutely. you want to sort of be. Absolutely. Um, I think it's much less um, popular now Absolutely. to be that English person. Absolutely. You can't even manage to say Absolutely. hello. Absolutely. But I mean, we are speaking about you know on several occasions about certain you know, developments in evolution where things didn't become necessary from the point of view of everyday life, mm. but for a kind of good healthy lifestyle we need mm. to do it. So in some way, I think that's one of the problems in Britain is, you can probably get along, if you happen to be a monolingual speaker, yes. you will get along better as an English monolingual speaker than as a French mm. and uh, German and certainly much better than let's say a Polish monolingual mm. speaker when I go outside mm. my own country that I can not expect that yeah, anybody will speak my language. So, language so, so there is certainly mm. the kind of the pressure mm. is different. But the point is, as we are speaking on different you know, occasions in these uh, episodes, that means that you need probably even more consciously mm. to develop your skills. Now, but that's where the resistance seems to come in. Yeah, people. There's a resistance to wanting to consciously develop. That's right. Skills. But I mean, let's say, like, well, we're English, so you know, we're, yeah, you know, we're, no, we're no good at this. But that's why I say, yeah. you know, for mm. instance, I mean, if you happen to have a work that you can do from home, mm. so that basically the only movement you need is to go from your bed to your desk and then spend yeah. the rest of the day, mm. then you need even more to go to the gym or have activity. Yes. So in a way, it's a very, it's a very, um, I would say, a deceptive mm. advantage. Yes, mm -hmm. I mean, I would say what I, we see now is not an English advantage, it's an English disadvantage. Yes. It's exactly the same disadvantage that someone would have who doesn't have to do any exercise mm. because let's say he or she works mm. from his or her computer at home. So they would become really very unhealthy if they didn't yeah, build some absolutely. exercise into the day. And, and yeah. the problem with the kind of this monolingual ideology is, I mean, apart from cognitive swing, I don't think it's, it makes you not quite as broad-minded. It makes, it's not good for your negotiation skills. Mm. It's not good for your understanding of other cultures and so on and so on. Mm. So from this point of view, I think, exactly because of the dominance of English, mm. 
Britain needs to make an extra effort mm -hmm. to promote languages, exactly the opposite mm. of what is happening. Mm. Now, one of the arguments here sometimes is, well, but we have the kind of native language advantage. This advantage is there only as long as you have a relatively small number of people who speak this language. Mm -hmm. So let's say, if we think about of writing in early period, you know, in ancient Egypt, if you could write and write, you were part of the absolute elite. Yes. But nowadays, you will not write with your special skills in your CV. I can read and write. People, well, no, will, people will laugh for you. Five-year-olds can do that. Exactly. <laughs> and that is a little bit what happens with the knowledge of English. So mm. paradoxically, in the moment where practically almost everywhere mm. knows some English, the value of being an English native speaker falls mm. because that is something which is self-evident. You mm. don't write in your CV things that are self-evident. You don't write, I can read and write, and I can even use email. Yes. I mean, <laughs> you will have tough time probably <laughs> in modern world if you cannot use email and if you cannot read and write. Yes. But it's not an extra skill mm -hmm. that you can put on. Yeah. So having English became so basic, it's not an extra skill. An mm. extra skill it's no something else. Yes. And that's why, in a way, Britain needs, if anything, more effort mm. to overcome this inner inertia, mm. linguistic, I would say it's a linguistic inertia, such as sedentary style, lifestyle is a kind of, uh, is a kind of, you know, physical inertia. Mm. And we have campaigns for people to healthy lifestyle. I mean, for instance, going to work, we have now campaigns trying to convince people not to drive to work, but walk mm. or cycle and so on and so on. It is recognized. And I think in a very similar way, Britain has to recognize that linguistic inertia is not a good thing, no. neither for individuals nor for the society as a whole, no. and needs to take action against it. It does. And um, an example I like to give, or a comparison, is with the sciences, because STEM has become a yeah. you know very well-funded and mm -hmm. um, promoted part of our education system. Yeah. Languages are very much you know, sort of an additional extra, an extracurricular activity, or um, if you're um, a yeah. primary school teacher um, who does languages, quite often you get drafted in to teach an hour a week uh -huh. of uh, French in each of the classes yeah. as an extra activity. And mm -hmm. it, it is now in the curriculum, but it's not really, it's not really going through the children's whole experience yeah. of learning. It seems very much like a separate part or a, an additional, a nice thing that you add on. And, you know, some yeah. schools do it really, really, really well. And then, you know, um, yeah. some schools are doing just the tick box minimum. And um, my belief is that languages are very much central to our experience of being human mm -hmm. and that you can't really separate a child from language at all. So, you know, in the playground, they might yeah. be surrounded by 20 languages and mm -hmm. then, you know, playing football in Polish and Portuguese. Yeah. And then they come inside to learn and their teacher isn't, you know, equipped to talk about mm -hmm. languages at all. Yeah. So when we have, you know, a topic like the Romans invasion of uh, mm -hmm. Europe and you can see the um, Celtic peoples on the map getting mm -hmm. pushed to the edges, you know, why, why are we not talking about how the languages, you know, changed at that point mm -hmm. and how Latin became yeah. a dominant thing? Um, I mean, speaking about schools, we are yeah. coming back to one of our first topics in the first episode mm -hmm. when we were speaking about the limited resources mm -hmm. model yeah. of the brain. I think we have also a kind of limited resources model of the 
education of the school. Mm. So the argument very often taken is, well, we don't really have the luxury mm. to spend some hours on teaching languages because this time has to be spent on STEM, on science, and so on and so on. Now, yeah. the point is, you would probably not use the same argument within STEM. So you wouldn't say, we don't have time to do physics because people should do only mathematics or vice yes. versa, yeah. you realize that in fact you need a balance yes. of different knowledge. If you know mathematics, you will probably be better in physics, and if you know physics, you will be better in... Mm -hmm. uh, in well, they support uh, each other, they, they, they do. Yeah. And another thing, I mean, very few people would also say we should in that case abolish physical exercise because mm -hmm. In this time, people could learn more math because you believe mm -hmm. that people should, so to say, be fit, that fitness mm -hmm. is part of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how language should mm. be seen. So, in a way, taking away languages is taking away from everything. It's not mm. leaving extra space right. for other topics. Mm. It is robbing people of a chance of mm. learning things without giving them something in return. And it doesn't give them the skills to um, become linguists. Um, I am glad that yeah. you speak mm. about the term skills. Mm. For me, languages are very much transferable skills. Mm. And that is another topic which I find fascinating because in some way I think we are coming back to view that we maybe had more than 100 years ago. Mm. I mean, as you notice again through these episodes, I like to see things in a historical perspective. Historical means for me really from the beginning of our evolution. Mm. Now, for a long time, languages were perceived as something which was kind of forming way of thinking and character and so on. Mm. When people were learning, let's say, Greek and Latin in classical education all mm -hmm. across Europe, the idea was not only so that they learned, so to say, the secret language, but there was the idea that it will make them aware of grammar, of thinking, mm -hmm. of logic, and, and so on and so on. they'll understand references exactly. to cultural exactly. events. And, and exactly. they will understand yeah. also their own languages, given the fact that practically most European languages are completely permeated by mm. Latin words, mm. and that is certainly the case in English, I yes, mean, more than many others. Mm. And uh, so from this point of view, I would say that's what nowadays we would refer to as transferable skills. Mm -hmm. Then we went through, I would say, a relatively unfortunate episode in which languages were seen completely instrumental. Yes. So you learn French because then, you know, maybe you can speak negotiate better. So, or you learn now, you learn German because they have good technology, so you'll understand their machines and yes. so on. And you will, you know, earn a better salary exactly. when you grow up because, you know, you can put it on your CV. Yep. So, so in yeah. a way, it became very, very instrumental, mm. very specific to a certain language mm. and to be honest, not a terribly good argument. I, well, I, I agree. I don't think teenagers are motivated by, you know, if you do um, yeah. some French now, then when you're 25, you might land a better job. You know, then yeah. it's that's very extrinsic yep. motivation. I mean, I think teenagers, but all all children, and I'm going to say people, we're motivated by what we enjoy, aren't we? Like, you know, I want mm -hmm. to do more of this yeah. because it's fun and Absolutely. I like it, and that, you know, you. you yeah you'll get a lot more out of uh, life if you take that approach rather than the extrinsic, you've got to do this because you should. <laughs> Absol absolutely, Abs you know, absolutely. I can tell my son, for example, that he should eat peas yeah. because they're good for him and they're healthy, but he really doesn't like them. And if I made them compulsory, that wouldn't make him want to eat peas any more than yep. he does. And you know, we have to try and 
you know, uh, find intrinsic yeah. value in it. Yep. So that, Ab ab yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. I think, in a way, a lot of what we learn now about cognitive aspects is, I see at least, as return to the idea that learning language is not for the language's sake, mm. but for the sake of the whole person. And the social... Exactly, the social, the, the cognitive, I mean, yeah, all of that. All, all, yeah. ex exactly, mm. all of that. So in a way, it become, it makes you more open-minded, it makes mm. you better in looking mm. for solutions and so on. Mm. It and makes now, you more of a person. Absolutely. It does. And now yeah. if you look at what, for instance, modern companies look for, mm. of course you need some certain skills. So you need, you know, you need to be computer literate, like you need to be literate generally and mm. so on and so on. But then the really good companies, they look for people who can be also inventive, mm -hmm. who can think out of the box, can who innovate. can be creative. Yeah. Well, innovation exactly. is who can a really innovate. Um, Absolutely. Who are problem-solvers, yeah. who can solve a new problem and not only those problems mm -hmm. that have already been solved by other people before. Yeah. Now, these are all skills that you can learn by learning languages. Yes. So I think we need a shift in the motivation mm for learning languages from this kind of very short-sighted and certainly mm -hmm. not inspiring no. instrumental approach mm -hmm. to an approach in which learning languages becomes really part of transferable skills which make you better in a lot of yes, other it, it is things. enriching. Exactly. It is an enriching experience. Exactly. I've even seen um, so literature saying that there's a 48 billion pound deficit in the economy and children need to learn languages to plug that yeah. deficit. I mean, no, no child is motivated by um, you know, the GDP crisis. Yeah. However, in order to make the, you know, the, um, yeah, yeah. the difference up in the economy by having more linguists, we, need, yeah, yeah. You know, we could be focusing on how yeah, to yeah. make languages a wonderful experience yeah, yeah. and how to make it real. Because if a child is playing football in the playground and they're hearing pasame and they yeah, understand yeah. that that means pass <laughs> me the ball, you know, that they, they, they're living language. They yes. hear children getting picked up by their parents and the parents in my school playground, they, you know, I hear Czech and French and Italian just, you know, in yep. one two-metre square area. Yep. And all the children come out going, Absolutely. you know, running to these parents. Yep. The languages are there and they're living. Yeah. In school, it is an invisible, That's unspoken... Right. Sort of, but you see, I mean, you, know, you are here. People, people sort of see it as a disadvantage, yeah. I want to say, but that you, you are there touching, are so many. You are touching on a very, very important point, because you mentioned it's not only French, it will mm. be probably Czech or mm. whatever, Arabic or Urdu being spoken mm. also in the, in the and schoolyard. And Romanian and Exactly, and exactly. Yeah. Now, we have a complete disconnect in this country mm. between the kind of languages which are perceived as the traditional language to be learned, like mm. French and French. German, because mm. that's what we've been doing for the last thousand years, mm. and languages which, there's debate whether we call them community or heritage languages and mm. so on, but languages brought by immigrants to the country, mm -hmm. which are perceived second-class languages that, in fact, you should kind of forget as soon as possible. Right. And that means that instead of embracing mm the linguistic diversity yes, of like the country. Yes, like an ecosystem. We yes. are trying to kill off mm. all other languages and then we are surprised mm. that then, a few years later, people don't want to study languages. No. So in a way, you either give a value to languages generally or you devalue them. Mm -hmm. And what we have is, I would say, a very profound and thorough 
way of devaluing languages in many aspects of British society. Mm. I mean, one you mentioned is the school. So the fact that, you know, there are the cool languages that should be learned at school and the, the others are seen mm. as a problem. English well, because sometimes language. I've seen EAL, English yes. as an additional language, lumped in with SEM. Absolutely. And it's not, it is not a disadvantage to be learning a Absolutely. new language. Absolutely. So to say yeah. knowing another language is mm. perceived as, you know, special needs perceived as negative. Yes, oh, this is going to be difficult for the yeah. teacher to manage, Abs so it's a problem. Absolutely, um, and I mean in many areas, I mean it was very interesting in June, I was speaking in London to a conference of Chinese teachers and uh, organized by Confucius Institute, and then a lot of schools in central London are offering Chinese mm. uh, as, uh, you know, one of the kind of modern languages of business mm. and so on and so on. But then it turns out that for many of those, they have already at least two languages mm. spoken by the pupils. Now, these languages can already make it easier mm. to learn Chinese because apart from English, maybe those kids will be speaking languages that might have sounds mm -hmm. which they will find in Chinese, might have grammatical structures you will mm. find in Chinese, might have also, uh, might have also conceptual difference that we find mm. in Chinese. People would say, oh well, but Chinese is so different from European languages. Yes, but for instance, let's say if you think of Chinese sound U, mm. which doesn't exist in English, anybody who knows French, mm. but also Dutch, mm -hmm. but also Scandinavian languages, mm. or Turkish for that matter, mm. or in fact most Scots dialects yes. will know the sound U, yeah. which will then be very useful when you want to say U mm. for fish or so. Yes. Uh, they are but no, no one's actually making that point in exactly exactly so the point is yeah. we are not using mm. this as potential mm. I was speaking about grammar again Chinese might be different but for instance Slavonic languages like Polish have also very important aspect which make I mean aspect in the grammatical sense which makes for instance learning Chinese aspect easier than yes. if you don't have this mm -hmm. knowledge and in terms of let's say vocabulary, English is quite unique about word languages mm -hmm. by not making a distinction between two types of to know, like the savoir mm -hmm. and in French and exactly, mm -hmm. or you know savoir in mm -hmm. Spanish or wissen in Canon in German, mm -hmm. and incidentally, rensch mm -hmm. and Judao uh, in Chinese. Mm -hmm. So you have exact. So the moment you speak any of the other European languages, you immediately yes. have this distinction. You've taken a few steps towards Exactly. So in that. a way, mm. I think we are coming to, you know, what I know you perceive as a kind of very, very important point, and I think you're absolutely right and spot on on that, that languages should not be taught in isolation. They should no. be taught, like, we don't teach in isolation chemistry and STEM but subject and I, so I on. Always make we the, let, um, exactly. I make the link with science because I, absolutely. If, if we imagine for a minute absolutely. that we are going to teach science the same way we teach languages in primary school. We would say nothing about science at all, all day, all day, all week. Yeah, yeah. We would focus on other things because they're the important things. And then we would get a special teacher to come in yeah, on yeah. Wednesday afternoon for sort of 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And we would teach five elements of the periodic table. Yeah. And that would be it. And then yes. we'd do six elements. And then we might do, you know, um, you know, one concept from physics. Yeah, yeah. You know, or something. But basically, we would then, we wouldn't expect anybody, would we, to become a scientist with that kind of beginning of science. That's yeah. a ludicrous proposition. But that's sort of what we do with languages. We say, right, we're going to do some colours, uh, or we're going to do some numbers uh, in French. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then we might learn Je m'appelle or something. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it does, it does build up. And there, there's, a, you know, a, a full curriculum there. But essentially, what we're doing is, you know, teaching a few very mm -hmm. discreet 
concepts, but we're not teaching the children, you know, like, okay, so here you are, you're already a linguist, you've been a linguist from birth because you've learned language. So mm-hmm. that's what a linguist is, somebody who learns and, and can understand how to learn a language. If we could link the children's lifetime experience, and they, you know, when they're five-year-old, as you know, you've got a daughter, um, they, they are wise beyond their years, aren't they? You, they, you know, they, they have knowledge, they're not a blank canvas. And we can connect those experiences yeah. that they've had to the, the new things that we want them to learn, languages, for example. Mm-hmm. If we can show them, like, these are the skills that you picked up learning your first language, you've learned how to infer from the context. Yeah, yeah. Let's practice that, right? I'm going to tell you what this is. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, a, a crayon. Um, so every time I point to this object, you will, you know, you, you're going to learn. And that, you know, if we teach children the skills and how to learn, how to decode, then they could actually become linguists and then they'll, you know, whatever languages they get then in later sort of primary school and into secondary, they'll be able to join the dots. I mean, yeah. I've taught French to um, GCSE students who didn't realise that French and Spanish are pretty much the same <laughs> and that you just have to change the endings. And, you know, and, 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 and it's actually kind of buy one, get one half price, really, and ab- French and Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and that's something which, for instance, my daughter, I mean, at mm. some point she wanted me to read from a... A book in French, and mm-hmm. then she noticed very fast that yeah. Jardin and Jardin yes. are in fact written the same, yes, pronounced the pronunciation is different, that's right. But mm. it must obviously be originally mm-hmm. the same. Yes, word. exactly. If we just took it one step back for children yeah. so they could see, like, so light in English is Licht, yeah, yeah. because because we, you know, we had German. As it is in, we, as we as had, in Scots, interesting. Yeah, exactly. We even had German cases. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, you know, um, well, we could talk about this all day, but essentially you can see why we have the apostrophe in English when mm-hmm. you understand that we used to have ES on yeah, the end yeah, yeah. of possessive, Edward's bed, mm-hmm. so, same as the hut des manes mm-hmm. um, in the dative, isn't it? And then now we do have a missing E um, because there used to be an E there. And, you know, people will understand concepts better if they understand, like, the context, I think, and how things link together and how, you know, why, why do we have the word coffee? Well, it came from um, Arabic, mm-hmm. the wine of the bean, kawat al-boon, and then it got um, traded into Turkey, and they mm-hmm. call it um, kafe, and then it goes traded all mm-hmm. the way around the Mediterranean to the Netherlands, mm-hmm. coffee, and over to, uh, you know, I, I like to imagine that, you know, the boats are being unloaded in the Thames, and people are getting this amazing black liquid, and one of the dockers in the Thames going, hey, Johan, you know, what did you, what did you call this amazing black liquid? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's coffee. And then that's how, that's how the word, if we taught the children how the words have travelled with the people mm-hmm. and link everything together, surely they'll, they'll see themselves in the context and they'll understand you know, where they fit in in the world. Because I, I, I sometimes feel like English speakers and you know, um, English children, they might just feel like English isn't really a language, it doesn't really count. As, as, you know, in the same way that a, a foreign language... Well, I mean, certainly, I mean, you know, I don't know how English is taught at school, not yeah. having been... There's so not very say, much sort of linguistic... But, but I doubt yeah. whether a lot of this kind of historical things are being taught. No. What I find very often surprising is how little language awareness mm. English speakers have about their own well, language. Well, exactly. So, exactly yeah, what you say. Mm. So, for instance, they, you know, why do you write Licht? Because it was Licht and it's mm. now light. Mm. So you still write as it was pronounced a thousand years With ago. With a G-H-T, which exactly. is why we have a crazy spelling. Exactly. Mm. Or, for instance, many people would say, well, uh, but, you know, in English we don't have the, uh, we don't have the polite address. We always mm. say you to everybody. Mm. 
you is the polite address. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. English has the impolite yeah. address. Yeah. Yeah. Ironically, it's yeah. only used towards one person mm. being God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the only person to whom you don't have to be polite mm. in English is God. Ah, yeah. so it's Our Father, yeah. thou art heaven, yes. thy name. Yes. So in a way, mm -hmm. so interestingly, the impolite form survived only in the context of addressing God, which yes. I find quite interesting. Yes, it's sort of a very yeah. archaic with, um, Which, by, by the way, it's, it's interesting the same because as the two in the rule in French. I, like, yeah, but know. I mean, interestingly, I mean, I found, you know, from one of my students who is from Malaysia, that in the Malay you have the same. You have the kind of, in prayer, you can use mm. the form which would be perceived too mm. impolite, is mm. using with any other person. So in a way mm. that shows, so to say, your closeness yes. to God. So in a way, so I think a lot of those things. I mean, in a way, English language for English speakers can be so much mm. more fun mm. and so much more meaningful if they can see it in the mm. context of other well, languages how, how it to which it's connected. Exactly, so that we don't feel like a disconnected um, linguistic yep. island, essentially. Yep. Yep. Um, I mean, I've even taught French verbs to children who said, but we don't use verbs in English, why are we learning verbs in French? And, you know, they, you know there's some really they big, really big gaps yeah. in yep. people's knowledge about how language mm -hmm. works at all. And then, yet, they may well be surrounded by 15 languages in the playground, yep. and that's seen as a problem. And I think we need to change the, the, whole, the whole attitude of Absolutely, and you know, coming back again to something that we mentioned at the very mm. beginning, I think one of the kind of very simple and important ways of changing it would be to change the way how language question is asked in the census. So at mm. the moment, the problem with this kind of what's your main language is, when I was trying to negotiate with statistic office and say, but the only reason we ask about language is so that we can provide services for people who don't speak English. Mm. So the assumption is if you speak any language other than English, it means you don't know English, yeah. so you really have again, it's you notice certain yeah. things mm. coming again and again as a kind of light motif in mm. our conversation, namely these limited resources. So mm. if you speak in another language, it takes away from English, mm. so try not to speak that language, then your English will be better and then you are not mm. a problem for society. Mm. So the way how the language question is asked in the census shows almost a kind of compendium mm. of several prejudices. One is the limited resources model, assuming that speaking any other language kind of destroys your English, mm. whereas all scientific evidence suggests that the more languages you speak, the better you understand also your mother tongue. So in a yeah. way, mm -hmm. you become a better English speaker by knowing other languages. Absolutely. We have a lot of empirical evidence for that. In America, there are kind of nice studies showing that Eng our children from English-speaking families, if they go to a Spanish bilingual mm. school, are better in English orthography yes. than those who go to English. Because, so that means yes. by learning Spanish, mm -hmm. they get better in English orthography That's in right. addition to learning. That's so from it. this point of view, I say, mm. in census you have this idea that, you know, any language other than English is taking away something from mm. English. So it's awful. It should be. And the second is language is a burden and a problem. Mm. Once you speak only English, you are fine for society. If you speak something else, then we have to provide you with extra things. Mm. So in a way, languages are a burden that has to be discarded mm -hmm. as fast as possible. Now, I cannot think 
of a more negative mm. attitude to languages than what is conveyed by the census question. Mm. And that is the only document, probably, that everybody in the country will get. Mm -hmm. So from this point of view, if we have campaigns and then maybe, you know, 10,000 people see it or 1,000 people mm. more or less, this is absolutely nothing compared mm. with a document that every adult in the country will see mm -hmm. every 10 years. And this document at the moment is shouting any other language than English is bad, mm. forget it, if you speak it, you are a burden for the country, mm. you have to... And you don't to, fit in. You don't fit in, yeah. you have to give it away. Mm. I think this is probably the single most negative mm. attitude it to language. It, it pervades through, um, well, in my experience, it yeah. comes right down to, say, health visitors yeah. who are telling um, multilingual parents that they should stop speaking Lithuanian because they need to focus Absolutely. on the child's English. And that, that's, just, that's just incorrect. I mean, you shouldn't stop speaking your, no, no, I mean, it's, it's your language with it's, your it's, children. It's, it's it won't help their English. It's completely no. incorrect. As I say, anybody who has any idea mm. of evidence mm. will show you. Just a few weeks ago I was in Singapore. It was very interesting because in Singapore you have sometimes families. I mean, firstly, Singapore is interesting because there are no monolinguals there. So it's a way you go yes. in a place where basically monolinguals doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So you can see how abnormal monolingual is. And uh, so all children will learn English, mm -hmm. but then what is considered to be the ethnic language, which could be mm -hmm. uh, Chinese or Malay or Tamil or possibly other Indian languages. Now, uh, there are some parents who think that you know, because English is more important, there, uh, there have to, you know, it's better if they speak English Yes, at they're home. trying to help their children, their children. Now, yes, But the point but... is, there's very interesting research by Susie Stiles from, from Nanyang Technical University showing that kids whose parents speak English at home instead of their, so to say, ethnic language, are not better at English at all, no. but they are worse at their ethnic language. Yes. So that means, so parents, by speaking English rather than Malay, Chinese or Tamil, are not helping the English at all, but are ruining the yes. second language. Well, that's it. So I, you yeah. get mm. pure disadvantages mm. with no advantage whatsoever. No, exactly. And I've seen that if you um, give a rich um, education in the ethnic mm -hmm. languages, actually, um, that really helps children yeah. with their English as well. So um, people whose parents have stopped speaking, say, um, Bengali at mm -hmm. home with them because they yeah, really, yeah. really want them to be good at English and yeah, English yeah, is yeah. the only thing that matters in this country, so we need to make it the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They actually plateau out. They don't get better at English after a Of course. Time. Whereas if you then reintroduce rich, uh, you know, um, yeah, stories yeah. and yeah. All, basically all of the usual yeah, yeah. things in Bengali, then their English starts to go up again. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. I mean, but as I say, I mean, there is so much evidence from very different studies, from different countries and so on. I think it would be difficult to construct any other argument. Mm. I think what we have here is an incredibly deeply seated prejudice. And mm -hmm. again, we are coming to what we spoke in the very beginning, to the kind of monolingual default assumption. Yes. That I think for many people, the idea is human brain, mm. mind and society are primarily mm. monolingual mm -hmm. and bilingual and multilingual is something unnatural, something which is kind of brought maybe through mm -hmm. immigration, this and that or and so nice on. Or a nice additional thing. Or it can yes. be a nice addition, but mm. in both cases it's something which is not natural. Yes. Now, the point is if you have, for instance, this view, then very, very quickly mm. 
you can arrive exactly at this idea well I cannot speak my language at home because then they don't learn English mm. and so on. Mm -hmm. This is exactly the limited resources model. Yes. And as I say, it causes mm. a lot of damage with no advantage because no. those children are deprived yes. of the opportunity to learn mm. another language with no advantage for the English mm -hmm. whatsoever. So just to conclude there, that speaking English at home, if your first language is not English, because you know, you're trying your best to get the children's English to improve, doesn't improve their English. No. And it dramatically yes. sort of hinders Absolutely. Um, progress within, Absolutely. with the first language Absolutely. as well. Um, yeah, so that's just really important. And you yeah. know, I think the, the educators need to be educated about how languages Ab work. Absolutely, because, because we're just approaching the whole thing. Unfortunately, from the wrong you can still mm. find people in position of authority being teachers or speech and language mm. therapists and so on who are telling parents those yes. things. I mean, yeah. this is really, yeah. I mean, it's for me like, I don't know, I mean, you know, fortunately we are not, you know, a binding people's left hand because they are left-handers and yes. so on. Yeah. I mean, what we are doing here, we are kind of linguistically binding it is, isn't it? it's their really quite tongue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I yeah. think, I mean, in a way for me, it's a really, it's a top-down introduced mm. linguistic deprivation that we are causing. Yes, yes, it's really dreadful, isn't it? Well, hopefully we can make some um, positive changes with the podcast and get the message out there that it's really normal to be multilingual. Multilingual is a completely normal thing. And we, in fact, yesterday we've um, jointly organised the International Day of Multilingualism on yeah. the 27th of March. And it was um, a great success. I think there was a lot of interest. Mm. And as, you know we could see from some of the comments, mm. some people were surprised that there was a particularly strong endorsement from UK and US, mm. which of course... So most more people were tweeting about it in the UK and yeah, the US. Which so. of course could reflect, as we said in the very beginning, the fact that that's where we have our networks, but it mm. could also reflect the fact that there's a tension Mm. in both UK and US mm -hmm. between an increasingly multilingual reality of the country yeah. and the rigidly monolingual normative monoglot ideology. Yes, and I would add into that as well that there's now kind of a third layer of a middle class bilingualism where, you know, if you can afford to and if you can, you know, have the correct yeah. environment, yeah. you can you can produce bilingual children even if you are not bilingual. Yeah, or, but it has to so, be, so yeah. to say, the right language. Yeah. So yeah, you French. have a very strong, it has to be French or maybe more and more Chinese yes. now. So That's you right. have now, so you have a very, very strong language hierarchy. Mm, definitely. Which is problematic. Now, given that we are in Edinburgh now, I would allow myself to mention something which I think is a very enlightened idea in the Scottish education system, mm -hmm. namely the one plus two policy, mm -hmm. which in fact is exactly the official directive of European Union, mm -hmm. the idea that children should be exposed to two foreign languages in addition to the first one. Mm -hmm. Why do I think that two makes so much difference when opposed to one? One of the very unfortunate aspects of recent debates, and we had 
seen it, of course, in aftermath, for instance, of the BBC report about language learning and so on, is that you suddenly have again this kind of limited resources yes. model applied to languages. So if you learn French, that means you will not learn Chinese. Mm. But if you learn Chinese, you will not get French. So in a way, you start having a mm. fight. We, if you have only one language, which language is has yes. to be? Mm -hmm. In the moment you have two languages, it's not a either or. Mm. You can say, as, as I say, it's recommended by European Commission, for instance, in the EU, you can say that the ideal would be to learn one other European language mm. and one other language which can very well be non-European. Yes. So, you could or then start... Or you know, an or, indigenous or language. An, uh, indigenous yeah. language. So yeah. Exactly. So, you can mm. do, for instance, you can do French and Ger or German, mm. but you can also do, let's say, Scottish Gaelic or Welsh, mm -hmm. if you are... Or Cornish. Or Cornish, exactly. Yeah. Or you mm. could do a less well-known mm. European language, like let's say Polish or mm -hmm. Lithuanian or mm -hmm. Russian, or you can do a non-European language like Arabic, Urdu or Chinese. Yes. So putting one plus two immediately takes us away from this toxic, mm. so to say, toxic competition, mm. toxic either-or situation in which, so to say, you have the you know, people fighting either for French or for this or for that and yes. so on, because you say mm. it's natural to have two, and then you can even think what are the best language combinations. Yes, yes, exactly, which is a very enlightened approach and one I wholeheartedly agree with. Um, thank you very much, Thomas. It's been really great chatting to you My uh, about languages. My and, pleasure. Um, I hope um, our conversation has opened a few new ideas up for people. Well, thank you very much. It was a great pleasure speaking to you. Thank you.